0: Tom, I
1: am also the person. Do you No, you go ahead. you
0: have the Old Testament? I have the Old Testament. Okay, so you guys are not done with me yet. <laughs> so, Tom, who I loved the part in your bio that said you're a bridge builder. I love bridges. They terrify me going over them, but I sure love getting to the other side. <laughs> so, he's asked that we read the Old Testament reading from Amos, and it's quite a few verses. Oh, good. For thus says the the Lord God, the city that marched out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which marched out a hundred shall have ten left. Ah, that you turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream.
1: Well, thank you. It is good to be with you, church, here in Placentia. Again, my name is Tom Kramer, and I'm the co-executive for Vision and Mission for the Presbytery of Los Ranchos. That's about 45 established congregations. And this morning and throughout the weekend, we're worshiping in eight different languages. So we come from all corners of the earth, and we just happen to end up here in this region. It's my great joy to be a brother to your elders and your Your pastors, as you may be aware, Alfredo Delgado's um, a consultant in our presbytery. He works in the area of church transformation and new worshiping communities, and he's been doing that for a number of years. And so his wisdom and his strength and his faith have been contagious for us, and I'm grateful for his ministry. And Tobin works with our committee on ministry. That's one thing about Presbyterians, we have all these different layers Where we serve and so he helps the relationship between congregations and their pastors and so um, i'm grateful for that and also being on the site team here with some of your elders for alfredo's doctorate uh, that's been a joy as well our new testament lesson comes from the gospel of matthew and i'm going to start a little bit before what you see there in your bulletin i'm going to start in verse 23 of chapter 4. So, because that's kind of the context of of the rest of it. So I need to start at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Now, remember his teaching we found back in verse 23, where it's about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And so here's his teaching Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And jumping down to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O God, be our teacher this morning as we reflect on your holy word to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that which you would have us see. And here in Jesus name Amen I grew up in a large family at least I thought I did until the good bodies came over they had 11 children we had seven I still think that that was a lot but I'm so grateful for growing up the way I did I learned a lot about coordination and teamwork and commitment and leadership And yet, some of those lessons were a little tough to take. When you came into my family's kitchen, there is this table, this dark wood that went all the way across the room to the kitchen sink. It was kind of like a bar area, but it was lower. And then on the other side of it, there were these benches that were there, and they wrapped around to this side. And you can imagine five or six children at a time sitting at that table and trying to slam down breakfast while finishing up our homework and yelling to each other and saying, This is what I'm doing after school. And so by the time we were teenagers, my parents had come up with a new name for this bar area. They called it the pig's trough. <laughs> because when we were all sitting there together, we made so much noise, it actually sounded like a herd of pigs that were feeding. Nighttime wasn't that much better either. Because we would line up, and the buffet table actually was there at the pig's trough. And so we would have this big line and go and serve ourselves from this buffet table. And as teenagers, I would look in front of me at my older brothers and sisters, and I would be, well, I was the fifth oldest, so I guess that makes me the third youngest or something. Anyway, I was thinking, I know how much they eat. And by the time I get there, I might not be able to get what I'd like to eat, even though I'm sure there was enough for everybody, that is, if everyone shared. But thankfully, I grew up in a Christian home with a father and a mother that read the Bible and taught us about God's love. And they not only taught it, they demonstrated it in every way they could. As a young child, I remember going to the riverbed area of Tijuana. It was a greatly impoverished area of that city during the 60s. And I remember playing on the streets with these tops that you would wind up with string and we'd be there all day as my parents met with the parents of those neighborhoods and addressed and and thought of ways to uh, address and alleviate the deep poverty that plagued their lives. And then as I got older, I realized how committed my parents were to to issues that were found in our own neighborhood, those issues of fair housing, and maybe not in our neighborhood, like prison reform, and public education in our town. Now, we grew up, and we're blessed to grow up, overlooking the yacht clubs, on the San Diego Bay, and my guess is that my parents could have made other choices regarding how to spend their time, but it seemed like their greatest joy was to do God's work and to make a difference in in the world for God, especially to people who are often overlooked and under-resourced. Now, even though it was their greatest joy, it doesn't mean that it was all fun and games. Because some of the issues they supported, quite frankly, put them at odds with our neighbors. And I even remember receiving death threats and them receiving death threats, being sent to our house because of some of the causes they supported. And yet they never backed down from helping the people they believed that God wanted to help. You see, they believe God wanted basically the same things for all the people of the earth. And just because we lived in Point Loma overlooking yacht clubs didn't excuse us from caring about the people who were so often excluded from God's blessings. In fact, my parents would say it gave us a greater responsibility for those in need, those who didn't have all the advantages that we had, like, food and shelter, access to health care, and most importantly, they would say that the love that they received from their own parents, and now we're pouring into us. You see, poverty isn't only about food and shelter, it's about respect and dignity and love. I don't know if Placentia still has the Logos ministry, but I'm sure the values are still part of your life together. It was a midweek ministry for children and youth, and at the center of that ministry was one rule. You are a child of God, and I will treat you that way. And all the children and all the volunteers in that program could recite that one rule. They knew it by heart, Because that one rule, it was really a value, permeated everything that Logos did in its time together in its community. It made it important to eat with real plates and silverware because children could learn to conserve God's precious resources and not always use disposable things. Adults sat with children at the table, taking their time, investing their time, and pouring into the children, because children need to be nurtured by loving adults. There was playtime and art, because our God is a creative God, and playing is one of the ways that we tap into that dimension of God's character through play and through art. And this is one of my favorite parts, especially as someone who was a little hyperactive as a child myself. You couldn't do anything bad enough to get kicked out of the program really it was a gymnasium for grace and forgiveness and your ministry made such an impact on me that I took it to my own church many years ago now my former church and we started a logos program there in the mid-90s and my own children still think about that experience as one of the most formative experiences of their lives. They can still tell you the one rule of Logos and the names of their table parents. Logos is where they discovered that faith is more caught than taught, and faith is worked out in relationship with others. You may remember the WWJD movement of the late 1990s. Many of us wore bracelets on our arms and put bumper stickers on our cars that would say WWJD signifying what would Jesus do but you probably are not aware that there was another movement very similar to it at the turn of the 20th century and I'm not exactly sure what made folks back in the late 1800s and early 1900s spiritually different even if they were in that time but it seems like that movement, which much, was much more reflective of Jesus' teaching about God's will for all people than the contemporary version of it. You see, in the late 1800s, and the turn of the 20th century, Christians exhibited a great hunger for the social problems of the world. And they did this because they were convinced that real followership, real discipleship of Christ should transform the world around them. They worked to abolish the slave trade. They advocated for women's rights. They led temperance movements, not because drinking alcohol was a bad thing in itself, because they were seeing that it led to domestic violence, unemployment, and child neglect. They may have said, among their sisters and brothers of the faith, I'm born again, I'm saved, I'm filled with the Spirit. But in the very same breath, they would say, and that means I'm wholly committed to bringing God's justice and righteousness to the ends of the earth. By the time 1908 came around, the Federal Council of Churches, to which our great-grandparents as Presbyterians belonged, wrote something called the Social Creed of 1908. It wasn't a long document, in fact it was barely a page, but in that document they spelled out what they... Felt every church should stand for, at least in that community. They address things like living wage in every industry and at least the highest wage that each industry could afford. And that workers should be able to take a day off in every seven days they work. That they should have some time off. That's a novel idea, <laughs> taking a Sabbath. And then also, instead of these sweatshops where children labored, the, the abolition of, of child labor and what that was doing to their development and growth. And their idea was the church should take the lead in these affairs, not because they were good for the economy or it was the logical thing to do, but because God cares about the dignity of every human being. This summer, you've been studying the six great ends of the church, which is found in our family's journal, as a tribe called Presbyterians, we keep these journals. We call it a constitution, but really it's a journal of our faith as a, as a family of God. And we have something called the Book of Order, and we have something from the Confessions, and it kind of charts our trajectory of what we've believed at certain times in our history. And we found these six great ends of the church and, and placed them in what we call our Book of Order only two years after the social creed of 1908 was adopted. Some of the language of the Great Ends, as you might notice, may seem a little dusty, and that's okay. They should be dusty because they were written over 100 years ago now. But the Great Ends are found in that portion of our family journal, our book of order, entitled The Calling of the Church, What is the church called to do? And it makes sense that the editors would place these great ends there because the great ends remind us of our calling as followers of Christ within this larger family. Our discipleship is never lived out alone. It's lived out in relationship with others. And in that section, you'll see other statements like, the church is to be a community of faith entrusting itself to God alone, even at the risk of losing its own life. That kind of reminds me of my mom and dad and their death threats from people in our neighborhood. And today we come to the fifth grade end, not that you've taken them in order, I've noticed, but the promotion of social righteousness. It's clear that this end doesn't really address individual righteousness, it's It deals with our common life together and indeed the difference we make as a community in the world. Sometimes we separate the social and the spiritual in our minds. We say things like, the church shouldn't get involved in politics. And what we really mean is that the church shouldn't get involved in partisan politics. You know, some of us like Fox News and some of us like CNN News. But really, the news that we want to hear is the good news. Of Jesus Christ. And so we want all of these relationships to be in order. Really, all relationships have a political dimension to them, don't they? Because politics has to do with the distribution of resources. Think of the relationships you have with your spouse or with your children or the children have with one another. I have a political relationship with my cats, you know? <laughs> Who gets what? (laughs) Who decides who gets what? That's what that's about. And righteousness on the most basic level has to do with right relationships. That is, right relationships when people in power care about those without the same power. When people who get in that buffet line first care about who's in back of them in line. That's what social righteousness is, as dusty as that language sounds. In our first reading this morning from the book of Amos, the prophet tells God's people that God despises their religious festival and is fed up with their pious posturing. Amos says that God isn't even listening to their hymns anymore. Why not? Because what God really wants is for justice to roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, God listens to the harmony of his people and not just the melody of a few. And that's what the word justice and righteousness mean in this passage. God wanted nothing to do with the the religion or a religion where relationships were all out of whack and where a few people hoarded all the resources and a whole bunch of people didn't get any. That's not what God was up to. And so Amos was saying, don't, don't think it's righteous to live with far more than you need and remain callous to people who don't have anything. It's not righteous to bring your tithes and offerings to church and mistreat your employees at work. Those two things don't match up. It's not righteous to be satisfied with a socioeconomic system that puts some at great advantage and others in great peril. God's righteousness demands more than that. I read an article a few years ago in Forbes magazine, and it provided some staggering statistics about the distribution of wealth around the world. It said almost half of the world's wealth is owned by just 1% of the people. Half of the world's wealth is owned by 1% of the people. Went on. The bottom half of the world's population owns the same amount of wealth as, and guess what, they put this in how-many-people terms. (laughs) The bottom half of the world's population owns the same amount of wealth as the top 85 people, individuals. And in the U.S., remember that crisis that we went through in 2008 and 2009 where my friend lost his home and there was that huge financial crisis. Well, they've done a study since then, and they found that all the growth that's happened since 2009 was captured, 95% of it, all that growth was captured, 95% of it, by 1% of the wealthiest people. And the 90% became poor since that crisis. It's amazing what you read in magazines these days. (laughs) So when you think about promoting social righteousness as a distribution of resources and you wonder what needs fixing in this world, you don't need to look too much farther than the distribution of wealth. And at the very least, it should make us sensitive to those who don't have anything. It's like going to a buffet and 1% of the people are eating 90% of the food. There's enough for everybody, but not everybody has access to it. In our New Testament lesson for today, after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and calling his 12 disciples, Jesus travels throughout Galilee teaching in synagogues, and I read it twice for you, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. But then he starts to show what heaven looks like. He starts to spell it out for us in case we don't know. It's where poor people are blessed. It's where meek people are in charge. They're the ones who actually inherit the earth. The people who who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled, meaning that all of our appetites for more and more and more, and I'm no different from you, those are never going to be satisfied. They'll only be satisfied when we seek God's righteousness rather than considering what only benefits us the most. That's when we're going to find wholeness. That's when we're going to find shalom. That's what God's righteousness is about. So discipleship isn't just about saying, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm filled with the Spirit. I believe I'm all those things, I hope. (laughs) Thank you, God. But it's not what makes a disciple. Discipleship is being called, called into a new way of life that promotes the reign of God in every way we can. After Jesus was crucified and then was raised from the dead, Jesus appears to his disciples. We celebrated this event, this festival, back in June, as you remember. We celebrated Pentecost together, and before Pentecost came, while the disciples were huddled together, there in Jerusalem, they asked a very significant question, at least for them. When is the kingdom to be restored to Israel? But instead of answering their question, Jesus tells them, that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus answers their question about God's plan by saying, yes, I will restore the kingdom to Israel, but it won't look anything like what you imagine. It will look like you being my witnesses here in this town and in this region, this presbytery, if you will, and then throughout the ends of the earth. You see, the witness from Scripture is that God calls individuals and communities of righteousness where justice becomes a core value for them. Noah's family, then Abraham's family, And then then Israel as a nation. And then, well, they're all, all those are called to be a blessing, not just to themselves, but to all the families of the earth. They're blessed to be a blessing. And then finally, with the coming of the Messiah, God works through the new Israel, the church, you and me, the new Israel, to heal and restore all of creation. That's what we're called to be. That's who we are. The British theologian N.T. Wright likes to ask people, what would it look like if God were in charge? Church people usually say, well, we'd have better coffee in the patio for one thing. But the fact is that in the ministry of God's Messiah, we have already seen a a glimpse of what it looks like when God is running the show. Jesus sees a leper and he reaches out his hand to heal him. Jesus sees a woman who's condemned for adultery and he makes those condemning her think about their own need of grace. And he sees a religion that cares a lot more about power and control and posturing than caring about the poor and marginalized. So So he shows them what authentic discipleship looks like when he feeds and he heals and he cares for those on the margins and those who are brokenhearted. And he doesn't stop there. He sends his very spirit into his church, into his followers, and empowers them to go and do likewise. And then he explains, this is what it looks like when God is running the show. As counterculture as it may be, this is the kingdom showing up here people are healed everyone has what they need just a few minutes ago we prayed the lord's prayer it's probably the most popular prayer of the christian tradition we prayed thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth on earth as it is in heaven But what we may not realize is that the entire biblical worldview, if you start from the first book of the Bible to the last book, it's predicated on the assumption that heaven and earth have already come together in some highly significant ways. Indeed, heaven and earth, from the way the Bible describes them, are interlocking and overlapping spheres of God's good creation. They're both part of God's good creation. This is getting a little philosophical, I know. I get it that heaven is different than what we commonly associate with the physical, that we can see and touch. But heaven, in biblical terms, very much overlaps and infuses physicality. It infuses physicality. And in the book of Revelation, at the end of this whole story, we see this most poignantly when God creates a new Jerusalem, not somewhere else, but on earth. In chapter 21, we see the risen Christ seated on the throne, and the risen Christ says this. See, the home of God is where? Up in heaven? No, the home of God is among mortals, and God will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe, here's here's the promote social righteousness part right here, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. I have made all things new. You see, heaven is not some place where you go when you die. It's the reign of God. It's the reign of God. Beginning right here and right now. And I get that heaven is God's space and earth is our space as human in terms of the way we think about them. But it's so important to see that the two have already been joined together in the person of Jesus Christ. When we pray and when we read the scriptures and when the Holy Spirit shows up and when we care for the poor and those who don't have access to resources in Jesus' name, we are right on the edge of heaven looking in we're acting into it we're serving into it and we're receiving from it when we promote social righteousness as a great end of what we do as God's people guess what prayer is answered the Lord's prayer is answered bread is served human beings forgive each other the children of God are delivered from evil. One thing that's important to note, if it hasn't already been mentioned in the weeks leading up to this Sunday, is that all sixth grade, sixth grade ends of the church are interdependent on each other. They overlap with each other. They're not like six responsibilities listed in your job description. You see, the shelter and nurture and spiritual fellowship of the children of God cannot be separated from the maintenance of divine worship, another great end. And that cannot be separated from the preservation of truth, and so on. You see, the the six great ends are not so much about what we are called to do, but who we are called to be as the body of Christ. All of these ends are being pursued at the same time. And to uphold any one of them, any of the great ends, at the expense of any of the others, would be to misunderstand what it means to be the church. They must be considered as a whole. They must be considered from the inside out, always in relationship to who we are as blessed people. Who we are as recipients of God's initiating grace. I went back and listened to the first sermon of this series. Alfredo preached that morning on the preservation of the truth, and he told the story of Zacchaeus, a man whom the religious people of his day would consider a sinner and a traitor. And while Jesus was having dinner at Zacchaeus' house, which, by the way, no good rabbi in good standing would do, at that time something happens to Zacchaeus and that passage from Luke is so cryptic we're not sure what it is that takes place between Jesus and Zacchaeus but we see the effect suddenly this tax collector and sinner a traitor of his own people stands up and he says look half of my possessions I will give to the poor and I have defraud- and if I have defrauded anyone of anything I will pay him back four times as much We don't know if Jesus talked to Zacchaeus about how to be a better citizen or or about cheating or anything, but Jesus looked at Zacchaeus with favor by his actions. He went to his home, which no one else would do. He stayed with him. He communed with him. He ate with Zacchaeus. And that day, Zacchaeus discovered God's favor. He discovered, as it turns out, that it's not primarily about getting things, about being saved or abundant life, to, be, to receive God's favor meant that God was for him and would stand with him and believed in him and was ready to welcome him into his kingdom. Alfredo had a great insight that day. He said, preserving the truth is not ascending to some religious proposition. I don't think he w- used the word ascending. Um, saying some religious proposition. It's coming into a relationship with the Lord of life himself. And that relationship is filled with grace and mercy, and it has a transforming effect on you, so much so that you can't contain it. When we look at the world around us and all of our needs, I'm telling you, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But when we know Christ and we think about the flow of the Holy Spirit, we can think about what it means to have an overflowing presence of God in our communal life together. So there's a difference between being overwhelmed and overflowing. And Zacchaeus experiences that when Jesus comes to dinner. Remember, Jesus doesn't say, this is a bad guy this is a sinner. We know enough about ourselves that there's always something that could be improved for sure. Instead, he says, today salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham. And so he stands up and he says, I'm going to make everything right. And I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor, probably because half of those possessions already came from the poor and people he defrauded. You see, A disciple's promotion of social righteousness is connected to the truth about who God is and what God has already done in our lives. This is a point that you need to reflect on. There are other reasons to promote social righteousness and other organizations that promote social righteousness, and they all have their place, but ours is because a graceful God has revealed to us that even those that are undeserving are fully included in god's love you see that's where we start with the promotion of social righteousness that our god includes those who are undeserving and social righteousness is not engaged because somehow we feel obligated to share a little bit of the bounty that god has given us but it's because the triune god who is love itself has blessed all of God's children with everything that God has. Jesus says a little later on in Luke, all that I have is yours. So we're going to move to this table this morning where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present. They have existed before they created time, and they exist in community together. And we meet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at this table we come to this table to get fed with grace that feeds our souls and then empowers us to be gracious to one another. You could see it as a, as a righteous buffet. It's the place where our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit to see the needs of the world around us and we're reminded that we have been blessed to be a blessing. We are the salt of the earth. There's no way to honor God's teaching or experience the kingdom without being so. If we prepare based on our own strength or goodness, or if we think that our participation is based on that, and we're striving to be little versions of the Messiah, I'll tell you what happens. We risk burning out. But instead we claim that God will make due on God's promises, and we join God in God's work. This is a table that we remember God's love and grace, that it provides all the basis for social righteousness. That's the foundation of it. And so as God's church, we are the people who step in when others don't and won't. We keep on keeping on because we know in the end God's righteousness will flow like an ever-flowing stream. And our prayer will be answered that God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. That prayer will be answered. Amen. This is the Lord's table. It doesn't belong to the Presbyterian church. In fact, it doesn't belong to any denomination. It belongs to Jesus Christ himself. The risen Lord is our host today. The apostle Paul wrote, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink from this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's bow in prayer together.